A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Heavily armed police prepare to storm the Jewish supermarket at Port de Vincennes. The recent murder of an 85-year-old Holocaust survivor by nearly 2,000 anti-Semitic incidents, a 57% We're coming on the air right now with breaking news. At this hour, police are on the scene of a deadly shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Anti-Semitism used to be thought of as a problem for old Europe. But during Shabbat services on the morning of the 27th of October last year, a man armed with an assault rifle and three handguns walked into a synagogue in the heart of Jewish Pittsburgh and shouted, all Jews must die. He then murdered 11 worshippers and wounded six more in the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in America's history. Polls among Jews on both sides of the Atlantic report a sharp increase in anti-Jewish incidents. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week, we're asking what's behind the new anti-Semitism and what can be done about it. My guest today is Deborah Lipstadt, Professor of Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University in Atlanta. She was famously sued by the British author David Irving for calling him a Holocaust denier. Her book about the trial and her victory became the subject of a Hollywood movie starring Rachel Weisz. But her new book turns the spotlight on the present, anti-Semitism here and now. Deborah Lipstadt, welcome to The Economist Thank Asks. you. So what is the problem that you feel you're putting your finger on and why now? Well, I think there is what, what I like to call a perfect storm of anti-Semitism that has evolved over the past five, six, seven years. It isn't something new. We've seen it before, but we've never seen it in this configuration. We see it on the right. We see it on the political left. And we see it from Islamists or jihadists who have engaged in terrorism against uh, Jews. So we've seen anti-Semitism before, God knows, but usually from one side or the other, but never in this kind of way, in this configuration. And I'll add one more element, which I think makes it different now, is that too, certainly since 2016, but probably a little bit earlier, thanks in great measure to what's gone on in my country in the United States, but it's caught on worldwide, is that the level of discourse... Uh, has has fallen to an unimaginable low. What you can say about someone, call someone, talk about someone, has just uh, changed so dramatically. And I think that adds to it too. These are two things you clearly believe are connected. We'd like to tease them out with you as we go along. But could I just ask you what the data is supporting your view? Because there is some disagreement around this if we look at something like the Tel Aviv University Cantor Centre. Its global study says violent anti-Semitic attacks have actually fallen sharply since 2014. How right. do we reconcile well, this? Well, each of these different studies look at it different in different ways. The Anti-Defamation League in the United States has data that shows it's gone up. It, each entity looks at it differently. But the uh, EU studies and, and EU-affiliated entities show clearly that Jews throughout Europe feel less comfortable. 
feel more threatened. I don't know that the violence is always the best measure. It's because some, it's at the extreme. It's at the extreme. You know, when, when the Pittsburgh tragedy happened, I was shocked, but I wasn't surprised. So, And you would have been surprised previously in your career, given I that you've dealt been, with anti-Semitism a long time. I might have been more time. surprised. I might have been more surprised. Yes. And the book is structured as a series of letters between you, a Jewish student, and a non-Jewish colleague. Why this device? I started to write the book, and I was using statistics, I was using data, and it just was boring. I couldn't get at the issue. And one day, a very good friend called me and said, letters. Mm. And that's all. And she hung up. (laughs) I mean, she, she said, letters. Do the book as letters. And I thought about it, and it gave me a chance to sort of get into the voice of the people who have been asking me things and talking about this for the past four or five years. So though the two characters, Abigail and Joe, are fictional characters, everything they ask is real. Things that students, colleagues, friends, people I've encountered, lectures I've given people, questions people have asked me. And it also means that people are able, or your characters, I should say, are able to to say things, which sometimes I think you describe somewhere as clueless anti-Semitism. That's right. I thought was a, a really interesting phase. Right. But it did make me think, what is this core definition of anti-Semitism? I would argue that every prejudice racism, homophobia, uh, sexism, whatever prejudice, group prejudice might be, have certain core characteristics. And when you talk about anti-Semitism, I would say there are always three elements there. Something to do with money, something to do with power, and something to do with the nefarious use, the evil, malicious use of that power at the expense of another group. And and that's how, you know, if you want to see, is this anti-Semitism or is this some, just some dolt, you know, mouthing off and what he's saying is, is, is unimportant, you look for those elements. So let me challenge that straight away by saying you could take that definition, stick it on another group, let's say the top 1% mm-hmm. of earners in that's society. Right. It became a bit of a, a trope and a phrase after the financial mm-hmm. crash, particularly right. here in America where I'm talking to you. And I could say these people have too much power, they're too rich, uh, they grind the faces that's... of the poor in the dirt. So why is it specifically anti-Jewish when used as you describe it. Very often when that is used, there is a Jewish element. I'll give you an example. The final um, advertisement, the final advert for Donald Trump's campaign had his voiceover uh, saying the globalists are taking over our government, the banking interests, the secret banking interests. And there were four figures shown in that ad. One was Hillary Clinton, his opponent. One was uh, the head then of the federal banking system, who was a Jew. One was the head of Goldman Sachs, who was a Jew, uh, the major banking firm. And then the third one was George Soros, the uh, international financier. Three Jews, and he's talking about cosmopolitan globalists. Now, I'm not sure that Donald Trump knew that there was that anti-Semitic element there. But whoever wrote it, whoever put it together, knew what, because those three figures, why would you suddenly pick the head of Goldman Sachs? Because they're heads of big financial yes, institutions. but they're heads of lots of financial institutions who aren't Jews. Uh, they're heads of, there are many people who are involved. You want to pick on people, you want to call out people. But if you're having four people, one your opponent, and then the other three are your choices, and they're all Jews, it sort of sends a signal. 
Where do you think this is fundamentally coming from? We've got a very turbulent politics on both sides of the Atlantic. Is it coming primarily from the right? We cite Donald Trump there Mm -hmm. and, and that example. Or from the left, where we often hear the charge that the left is tending towards yes. actively or otherwise promoting anti-Semitism. Look, you're in Britain. I visit Britain often enough. What we're seeing today with the Labour Party and the current leadership of the Labour Party is a clear example of left-wing, progressive, uh, almost Marxist kind of anti-Semitism, where there is not only is there engaging in anti-Semitism, do people engage in anti-Semitism, but there's a failure to recognize anti-Semitism, to fail to even say it's legitimate when you come to them with a complaint or with a say that was anti-Semitic. Oh, no, that can't be anti-Semitic. Many of the people at that end of the political spectrum look at the world through a prism that has two facets when it comes to prejudice. One is ethnicity and one is class. And they look at Jews and they see white people, which is sort of ironic because the people on the far right see Jews and see not white people, but that's that's for the rest of the conversation. And they look at Jews and they see power and privilege. So how can you possibly be talking about prejudice? And a third element, I, the person on the left, says, I am, Jeremy Corbyn says this, me? I'm a dyed-in-the-wool progressive. Uh, my parents met at a progressive you know, anti-fascist rally. I got this with my mother's milk. Uh, how could you possibly say I'm a prejudiced person. So how can you say he's a prejudiced person? Well, because you look at not what he thinks and not what's in his heart. I don't know in his heart whether he's a prejudiced person at all. I don't know whether Donald Trump is a prejudiced person at all. But I look at what they do. And what they do and what they say and what they foment and the people they hang with, (laughs) um, especially in the case of, well, case of both of them, um, give me pause and say that's the actions of someone who is fomenting anti-Semitism. But it sounds a little bit, I'm going to stick on Jeremy Corbyn because it's a rather different category of politician to to Donald Trump. When you say who he hangs with, yeah, you see, I got that, we're really smart. (laughs) But it's interesting that there are populist commonalities, perhaps, mm-hmm. that, yes. that that sometimes we, we forget when we mm-hmm. talk about the old left and right. right. But let's say Jeremy Corbyn says, look, I have a particularly strong view on Israel. It's not uncommon on the left. I've never said I wasn't a Marxist or at least fundamentally mm-hmm. a Marxist in my world view. I believe that there are powerful uh, countries who are devastatingly unfair to minorities. He's very strongly on the the Palestinian side Mm. of the argument there. So he says you're conflating this with anti-Semitism because it suits your argument not to take his seriously. I I think it's very important here to understand that criticism of Israel or saying I am worried about the Palestinians or I think the Palestinians are oppressed is not ipso facto anti-Semitism. And anybody who says it is, 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 is ignoring the issue or restructuring or conflating two things that aren't necessarily connected. However, However, with Corbyn, we've seen statements, uh, yes, he said Zionist, but he certainly was talking about anybody who supports Israel don't have a sense of irony. A British, you know, they aren't they aren't quite British is what he was saying. Now, it's really quite funny because if anybody's introduced certainly irony to the world, it's the Jewish comedians. Um, no famous Jewish jokes out there. Yeah, right. Or with the mural, the Mears One mural, you know, the mural with the four or five capitalists sitting around playing a Monopoly game. On the backs on of, the backs of, oppressed of, of a really yeah. oppressed workers. And the Jewish caricatures of these people, you couldn't miss them if you drove past at 80 miles an hour. Well, he says he did miss 
miss it. And he says, I was looking at that as an example, a street art example of something well, targeting oppression. Yeah, he, I, I, it, it beggars the imagination. Let me put it simply. It just doesn't fly. It just doesn't fly. First, he attacks it. And then when he's caught where he can't make it up, he sort of says, well, I didn't quite know. And the same thing with taking part in the commemoration of the people who took part in the Munich uh, massacre at, at the Olympics. The, the things add up. It's like drip, drip. So is he fundamentally anti-Semitic in your view? I don't know. How can you say you don't know after you've just given this long list of evidence? What's in his heart, I don't know what's in his heart, and I would never presume to say that. Has he contributed to making anti-Semitism okay, saying anti-Semitic things by those who are in his political camp? Yes, absolutely. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, said recently on television in Britain that Jeremy Corbyn might not quite realise the impact of his words and actions. He talks about it. He's actually condemning anti-Semitism, just to give you the context. He says, as with a number of common prejudices, many of us thought to be things of the past, anti-Semitism has returned in some force in recent years. People not realising quite the impact of their words and attitudes. Is that a fair defense of Jeremy Corbyn? That was the context. Yes, I, I don't think it is. Um, first of all, he is the leader of one of the major political parties in Britain. He is a presumptive prime minister. You know, if he were a better politician, we would say he's the next prime minister. I think to say they don't recognize um, is is giving him a pass. Look, we have someone in the United States, uh, the Reverend Louis Farrakhan, who's head of the nation of Islam. And he's, he has said horrific anti-Semitic things. He recently tweeted, I am not an anti-Semite. I am anti-termite. And some of the people who were on his part, and these are the women who are leaders of the Women's March, who are great supporters of his and fans of his, it took them weeks to condemn it. And they said, we didn't quite understand it. We didn't quite get it. Well, I don't know how much you have to know when you hear a people called termites to say, that's not a good thing. And especially, because who do you call when you have termites? You call the exterminator. And Jews know that, you know, see under Nazis. We know who comes. So to say, oh, I didn't quite get it. Or if someone were to use the N-word, you know, as, as, as in, in reference to African Americans, and say, oh, I didn't realize it was so insulting. I, it doesn't fly. Do you think the Women's March has been compromised by that? I think the leadership of the Women's March has been compromised. The ideals of the Women's March, I support 110%. Uh, the refusal to include Jewish women as a group that faces oppression or a prejudice, a different kind of oppression than someone of color. Um, and their connection with Farrakhan and their refusal to, to, to distance themselves. Look, if there were a Jew, or even a non-Jew, doesn't matter, with whose political views I was in 98% in, in agreement. But they they consistently used the N-word and talked about African-Americans in a really derogatory way, I would say, I can't march behind you. I can't march next to you. It's a deal breaker. Where do you place the recent violent attacks, thinking about Paris, Pittsburgh, in the history of anti-Semitism? You wrote your book before Pittsburgh. Right. I, I wrote the book. In the introduction to the book, I talk about the fact how hard it was to write this book. 
I never thought I'd write a book that had a subtitle here and now. But it was a harder book to finish because every time I thought I was done, there would be another incident. A Holocaust survivor in her apartment in Paris murdered by a Muslim uh, neighbor. The story about Jeremy Corbyn in Tunis. Donald Trump saying something. Every day there seemed to be something else, Viktor Orban in Hungary. But then in the in the end of the introduction, I say, um, if it was a hard book to write and a hard book to finish, um, I'm willing to predict, I'm nonetheless willing to predict that by the time it appears, something will have happened which will have changed the story or be added to the story. And I'm not one who usually deals in predictions. I'm a historian. I handed in the manuscript at the very end of August, beginning of September. Reluctantly, I handed it in. And then end of October came Pittsburgh. So um, it it has, it, it, that was a shock. That was a shock. Uh, not a surprise, but it was a shock. And what, what do you conclude from it. There's a tendency, there are two tendencies, and I suppose we, we look for the truth somewhere in the middle. One is to say this terrible thing has happened, and this is a sort of one-off person, probably somewhere influenced mm-hmm. by the zeitgeist, but had a propensity to violence to start with, and hatred. The other says, this is absolutely proof of a trend which I've laid out in, I, in a book like this. Where do you sit on that? I spectrum? sort of sit in the middle. Look, this is a man who was sure there were hordes, uh, hordes, using the president's, uh, President Trump's term, hordes of migrants coming to this country to invade this country. I mean, we just had a presidential uh, address not long ago uh, where he talked about drugs coming across and danger and murder and and there's going to be this seas of bloods of American being felled by these illegal immigrants. And, and this man was ginned up with this hatred. And then he was sure it was Jews who were doing this. There is a theory, sometimes it's called replacement theory, that the Jews are out there to replace others. For instance, when the marchers in Charlottesville were chanting, what were they chanting? Jews will not replace us. So what they were saying in a way was that when an African-American gets a job that I as a white person might have wanted or gets into office, They aren't smart enough, says the prejudiced person. They aren't capable enough to have gotten there there on their own. They got there through the help of Jews. Jews are replacing us. Jews are behind the scenes, remember, nefarious use of power, behind the scenes controlling things to put people in place. So I hope Pittsburgh was a one-off, but it scared Jews very much. No responsible synagogue today does not have some sort of guard in front of the door. Now, whether that guard could stand, stop someone with an automatic weapon, I doubt it. You know, uh, President Trump's first comment was, well, if the Tree of Life synagogue had had a guard, things might have been different. Yes, they would have been different. There wouldn't 12 people would have been killed instead of 11 people. I noticed that you you were drawn back to talking about Donald Trump in, in the conversation I think you've said you don't think he is anti-Semitic. I, I don't know. He has he has Jewish children, Jewish son-in-law, his daughter converted, Jewish grandchildren, of whom he seems quite proud. But the point is that I think getting into the debate of who is and who isn't takes us down the wrong path. It doesn't lead to to helping the situation. Uh, in other words, I'm not here to judge. I'm not giving them a pass. I'm not giving Jeremy Corbyn a pass. I'm not giving Donald Trump a pass or the people around them. But I'm saying, I don't care. 
I don't care what's in your heart. It's immaterial to me. What I want to know is what you do and what you foment others to do and what others think of what you're doing. Uh, the fact of the matter is that certainly here in the United States, extremists, white nationalists, people on the far right, all believe that Donald Trump agrees with them in their in their white nationalism. You're suggesting that he needs, if he doesn't want to come into this category, he needs to separate say, himself. Well, if, if I did something that everybody misunderstood and thought I was, I was supporting something which I, which I think is vile, I would say, what am I doing to, to make people think that? And I would openly address it. And we haven't seen that. I'm talking to you in New York. And one of the things I noticed arriving here from, from Britain is that there's a, perhaps a, a more lively conversation and disagreement about Jewishness in pop culture. And it's really fascinating to to observe that, particularly as it involves names, comedians, shows we, we all know. And we've just had the Golden Globes. Rachel Brosnan took home Best Actress for the musical comedy category of the second year with Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, very successful. A show series. I love. And a show you love, <laughs> right. Well, that's actually, that's good to know because one of the things that I heard, and we were at an event earlier this week mm-hmm. with a lot of Jewish people here in New York, and that was one of the big dividers. Yes. Right? yes. Some people were, how can you like this show? It's a sparkling kind of fantasy on 1950s New York without the racism or the homophobia or indeed the anti-Jewishness. Mm-hmm. And yet you like it. I think because it, it deals with some of those issues. Yes, it has stereotypes. There's a mother-in-law who in the middle of summer is wearing her fur coat in the Catskills or things like that. That is utterly ridiculous. But I think it's done lovingly. I'll give you an example of a show I don't like, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David's. Ah, there right. I find a much more contemptuous attitude, Larry David's contemptuous attitude to his own Jewish identity. I find that very, I find it, I mean, some of it's very funny, um, but I find too many of those elements disturbing. So it's not like I let down all my guard and I let down my uh, judgment when I'm watching a funny show, but I I, What's wrong with Larry David? Yes, it's a particularly mordant humor. It has an element of self-hatred in it, but, you know, there are quite a lot of middle-aged men and women who have a bit of that about themselves. Absolutely. I don't think So what is wrong with it? This is going to sound very naive and very silly, but I think uh, that a show like Mrs. Maisel's, and I doubt that it's... Is it in England already? Yes. Mrs. uh, Maisel has everyone switching on. Some people (laughs) find it too kitsch, but I haven't heard so much of that charge around it about Jewishness. Make the distinction Um, for us. I think Mrs. Maisel's is done with a certain affection... It doesn't have all the neuroses of a Larry David, so who doesn't? You're never quite sure whether he despises being Jewish or he despises people who are Jewish or he's taking part in all these things. The only things he can identify with his Jewishness are usually negative, not nice things. Now, most of what he does is negative, not nice things, but but it grates in a way that Mrs. Maisel's doesn't grate on me. And does it depend? On who is telling the joke? I mean, you told a very funny story when I saw you out and about earlier this week talking at an event about a a woman who is accused, I think, by those on the the right, Mm. orthodox Jews, of of not being sort of committed enough as a reformed Jew. And that she replied, she she had Jewish education for her children, and that costs a whole apartment in New York. Now, that's genuinely funny in the context, but you could say that's a joke also about money and Jewishness that you just said earlier was a bit of a telltale sign. I think there's a difference. Uh, African-American 
African-American comedians use the N-word. I think there's a difference when it's an in-group telling a joke about themselves or saying something about themselves. It's a different thing, number one. Number two, this woman, this journalist, this editor of The Forward, a very fine newspaper, Jewish newspaper here in the United States, was called because some Jews on the right didn't consider her sufficiently pro-Israel. They called her a self-hating Jew. And she said, if I was a self-hating Jew, why would I have sent my children from preschool through to the 12th grade to Jewish schools? You know, why would I have spent all that money on tuition? So my joke was, in New York, if you add up what that costs, that's an apartment. It doesn't mean you can't make a joke about it. It's how you use it and in the context that you use it. We must come back to your broader thesis and, and what you want your book to achieve. You say you hope it will provoke action. What kind? You know, I don't give a checklist at the end. Certain things are scattered through the book. First of all, I'm not a prescriber of what people should do. I say in the in the beginning, I hope people will read the book with nuance. There's something in the book to annoy everyone, to annoy people on the right. There's going to be people on the left who are going to be annoyed. There are people who think Israel can do no right who are going to be annoyed. There are people who think Israel can do no wrong. There's supporters of Bibi Netanyahu who are going to be annoyed. I, 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 it's a sort of even... Uh, even Equal oppor- opportunities equal opportun- uh, opportunity uh, criticism. But I do think that there are certain things people can do. And it's going to sound very simple and very maybe even weak given the situation sometimes that we face. But first of all, when you hear something, say something. If you're sitting at a family dinner or at some uh, corporate lunch or whatever it might be, and someone makes a crack. Someone turns to the only Jew in the group and says, oh, they're bargains, you know, X, Y, Z, the store is having a big sale. You would really be interested in that. Um, Say something. Or what happened to me when I first began my teaching career, fresh out of graduate school, my first year of teaching, I was at the University of Washington. I was the first professor of Jewish history there, the first person teaching anything in Jewish studies. And a colleague in the department, happened to be a Brit, uh, took me out for coffee and he said, Deborah, you've been here now almost a year and I have to tell you, when we heard that the person who had been chosen for this job by the department, by the committee, uh, was a Jewish woman from who had been raised in New York, we really were prepared for the worst, but you're terrific. And I just sat there and I, t- I was silent. I should have said, excuse me. You know, I don't know how I would have said it, but that is one of the most anti-Semitic, stereotypical things that you could say. So I, I, you have to say something, even if it's a family dinner. When you, you don't, you, you have to say it. Maybe this is the point. Maybe not to change the mind of the prejudiced person. If old uncle whatever Joe is coming to dinner and he's going to say something homophobic, sexist, racist, anti-Semitic, you won't change his mind. But for the people around the table, particularly the younger people, but not only, we don't let those things go by. That's not what we believe. That's not what we say. Do you think you could stop an atrocity like Pittsburgh happening again? Yes, gun control. That's a whole other issue. There will always be haters there, but it's the weapons that haters have to do their damage. I must ask you, as I think I first wrote about you in the David Irving trial and that great contretemps, which then became the great legal case, which you eventually won. Broadly speaking, and you look back, what did you learn from that? That was the beginning of perhaps the revival of an argument about Holocaust denial. 
when you look back on it now, and it's there, it's on the screen for people who want to see the lightly fictionalized version. How much have you changed? How much have I changed? I don't. I hope I haven't changed very much, but I do know that people listen to what I say more because of the case, because of the movie. Now this book is getting a lot of attention, so I, I've become somewhat more careful in how I say things because I want to be heard. I, I adopted in this voice. I work in this book. I worked very hard n- to keep a still small voice, to keep a low voice, to not be preachy, to not be accusatory. Of course, I accuse people of certain things, but to try to do it in a very balanced, evidence-based way, because I want people to read it and to think. You're on campus. You see young people around you all the time forming their worldviews, arguing with each other. How much faith do you have that this younger generation can have both a positive identity politics, a sense of themselves and their backgrounds, whatever that might be, without that becoming susceptible to the kind of suspicion of other groups. I have to hope that it's possible because I still spend my time on campus. I don't want to give up my job. I don't want to go on and do other things. Um, I do what I do on a Basically, the main thing I do is teach, whether I'm writing or I'm in the classroom. And I've got to hope that uh, people can feel strongly about their identities and at the same time have a larger group identity. Deborah Lipset, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. And we want to hear what you think. How can anti-Semitism from both left and right be countered? Write to us, radio at economist.com, tweet us at Economist Radio, and please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in New York, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.